Trub Alpern, the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, a weekly guest on Fangraphs Audio, Dave Cameron. Of course, uh, it's become a habit uh, of sorts now to begin each episode by describing uh, precisely what percentage of baseball Dave Cameron has, or uh, in this case of this, uh, will uh, analyze. Uh, generally, it has been all baseball. Occasionally, we've seen uh, something north of 100%. Uh, most recently, it was 93%. Uh, Dave Cameron was difficult this week. I asked him, I said, uh, I says to him, I says, Dave Cameron, um, with regard to, to all baseball, how much of it do you think you analyzed? Uh, this is what he said. Yeah, I think I probably analyzed two standard deviations above the, above the mean. He went on to say uh, that he gave that response so as to make it as difficult as possible uh, to title the episode. Yes, so that's uh, um, that's what we have to look for. It, in terms of actual content, Cameron considers outfield alignment, how meaningful it, it might actually be. We look at more along the lines of projections, where the fans are optimistic and also less so. Uh, we also spend uh, some time in there discussing the uh, left or center field situation uh, with the New York Yankees following Curtis Granderson's wrist injury. Uh, there it is. Uh, there it is. It is uh, It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Positional, I mean, positional arrangement in the outfield. Alignment. Yeah, positional alignment. Yeah. Outfield alignment. Yeah. Yes. Outfield alignment, uh, in which um, something like methodically, you uh, look at the question of whether it really matters. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of uh, kind of efficient defensive positioning has been one that has been discussed. You know, usually when you see outfielders uh, get moved around, you know, we're seeing some interesting experiments this year with like Shinsu Chu moving center field and. Uh, the Angels are moving Mick Trout to left field to make room for Peter Burgess, even though Trout was an amazing defensive center fielder last year. Uh, I think a lot of people just kind of have this idea of up the middle equals defense matters, where center field, shortstop, second base, and catcher defenses are premium, and you definitely want to maximize your defensive performance in those spots, and at the corner it doesn't really matter all that much. Um, I think on the infield there's probably some truth to that. I think you know there's a, probably a pretty big gap between second base and first base, even though they play right next to each other. Uh, in terms of athletic skills and what they need to be able to do. But in the outfield, I think, in general, outfielders are outfielders. Uh, you know, if you play center field or left field, you're going to have balls at you. You're going to have a chance to run around. You're going to have a chance to throw. There's not huge differences in skills required to play left field versus center field. You know, you probably don't want to have a noodle arm in, in right field, you know. Um, but for the most part, I think the data shows that playing one outfield position versus playing another outfield position isn't likely to make it a huge difference in, in most cases. Right. So uh, let's look at I mean, look at it just from first principles, I guess. Uh, if for any position, right, you're wondering, um, and, and I suppose this is the way we could evaluate how um, important is the fielder that you put there, but I guess you're looking at the quality of batted balls that are hit to that area, right? Um, you're looking, and you're looking at the frequency, I suppose, right? So if you know, for example, an infielder that a ball is going to be hit on the ground, this is probably what makes... Um, hands more important, right? And there's less time to prepare. Um, I mean, this is just very basic, right? And and so in the outfield, you're looking more of, I, I, you know, range is obviously important. To what degree is that fielder going to get to the balls? 
Um, and also you're looking at how many balls are hit into that player's region. Now, you looked at this with the help of um, our uh, databasing gentleman, uh, Jeff Zimmerman. You looked at the numbers of batted balls that are hit to each of the different outfield positions. It, on, on the one hand, they could be they, they look different, but you sort of are able to kind of whittle them down so maybe that the uh, apparent differences are are um, less substantial. Well, yeah, but I think when you look at it, you know, if we look at the distribution and, and we can say from both like chances and putouts, it appears that it's something like a thirty percent, forty percent, thirty percent split between left, center, and right to where you know a uh, the center fielder gets more balls than, the, than a corner outfielder, but it's not you know seventy. 2010 or something. I mean, it's a, you know, within spitting distance of each other. Um, you know, a center fielder doesn't get so many more chances that it's not uh, overcome by the fact that, you know, they also take days off, which reduces the, the magnitude of um, the total number. I think in the article we, we said that, you know, a center field position over the course of the year on its team will be about an extra 200 balls hidden in their direction, which sounds like a large number until you realize that a pretty decent chunk of those are going to be, you know, screaming line drives off the wall that no person could catch, and a decent number of them are going to be lazy pop flies that, you know, Joe Schmo off the street with a glove could catch. When you eliminate the balls that are, you know, uh, essentially not going to be impacted or the results not going to be impacted depending on who the, the defender is, and then you reduce the amount of playing time to the fact that, you know, most players don't play every single day, uh, you know, what we end up with is probably a couple of dozen balls that could go uh, either direction, depending on the quality of the fielder. And then once you're dealing with the fact that you're already selected out, you know, better defensive outfielders just by the fact that you're discussing whether this guy should play center field or not, you're not going to have that discussion about Adam Dunn or Carlos Lee. Uh, then you're looking at a small spread in talent that says, of those couple dozen balls, you know, maybe this guy gets to four, five, maybe six extra, um, you know, over the, the guy with less range. And, you know, I mean, that can add up to, you know, maybe half a win, maybe even a, a full win if there's a huge gap. Uh, but I don't think we're looking at an area where um, it's it's really a massive difference. So, and, I mean, partially this comes from the conversation about uh, Brett Gardner and Curtis Granderson, that becoming an issue, I suppose, because uh, Curtis Granderson won't be around. And so that, that gives Brett Gardner the opportunity to play center, or I guess what some would view as the opportunity to play center. Um, but But maybe your suggestion is that, Brett Gardner is going to be good in center, or is going to be good for the Yankees in center because he's good for the Yankees in the outfield generally. Yeah, I mean, I was actually working on this post before Granderson got hurt, and, and Granderson getting hurt was a little annoying because there was talk last week that they were going to flip the two even if they were healthy, uh, with Gardner potentially taking over in center and Granderson taking over in left, and then it would have been a more interesting story and that the Yankees weren't forced to do this, but it was something they were choosing to do to maximize the efficiency of their outfield alignment. Uh, now that Granderson got hurt, it's it's less interesting because the Gardner is forced into center field, and when Granderson comes back, it'll probably be easier for them to just to slide him into left field because that's where Gardner's already playing, uh, or because Gardner's already playing center field, to just push Granderson to the corner and, and go from there. Um, but I do think it's interesting to look at, you know, if Granderson hadn't gotten hurt, is this something the Yankees should have been, you know, all that concerned with? And, you know, I think that there's maybe uh, some interesting non-run uh, performance things here. Granderson is a free agent at the end of the year, right? So he's an aging player who's probably turned into more of an offensive player than a defensive specialist. Uh, if you're the Yankees and you're, you're looking at Curtis Granderson and saying, you know, if he has a good year and we want to bring him back, if he has 35 home runs as a center fielder, 
he's going to command a lot more on the open market than if he commands 35, if he had 35 home runs as a left fielder. I'm not saying that the Yankees were considering making the switch just for financial reasons, but I do wonder if, if there was some motivation to say, Gardner's the guy we have under team control. Let's make him look more valuable than the guy we might be, uh, have to pay in free agency in order to retain in a year. Right. And then, uh, and then, uh, in the offseason, or maybe uh, later, the the, uh, the Yankees acquire uh, another outfielder. They put him in center and move Gardner back before he becomes a free agent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is probably a secondary concern. I'm not trying to push right. a like large conspiracy theory here, but I right. think you know if you're looking at you know maximizing the value of your players and you know that the market values center fielders differently than it market markets left value left player left fielders, then perhaps you should. Um, focus on having the players that you have more team control over on playing the more valuable position. Do we see here, do you think, uh, maybe an analog uh, with uh, batting order? Um, where we, we know, of course, that there are ways to optimize batting order. Uh, we also know that the most important thing is just to have good batters in your lineup. Uh, maybe with the, you know an optimized batting order, you can, um, you can get yourself a couple runs over the course of a season, but much more essential is having the proper personnel. Yeah, absolutely. Defensive alignment is basically the batting order of a fielding. Uh, you know, you're essentially putting guys in positions to where they'll get more defensive opportunities, which is the same thing as just hitting them higher in the order, where you're, you're putting your good hitters up front so that they'll bat more often. Um, this is the same idea of putting guys in a position where, uh, you know, your best defenders get the, the most chances and your worst defenders get the least chances. There's some maximization of skills within that. You know, strong arm guys go to right field, weak arm guys go to left field, you know, rangy guys go to the outfield where reactionary guys go to the infield. Um, but overall, I think it's, it's more of just figuring out how to make sure that the ball is hit at your best defenders as often as possible, which is, you know, the same concept as, as hitting a guy one through nine. Now, uh, I'm curious, I, this is going to ask you to speculate a little bit, um, just as with batting order. With batting order, we see guys, um, we see guys have a certain comfort level, perhaps, with one spot in the order rather than another, maybe – uh, I, you know, uh, uh, I think it was there was uh, much made of, or at least something made of, Carl Crawford's reluctance to hit as a leadoff hitter, for example. I remember as a younger Red Sox fan, uh, there was always conversation about, you know, in what order you would have uh, David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez, uh, and those players seem to have preferences. Um, I wonder, do do you think that? Oh, and I should say also. Um, that uh, players would have a certain amount of pride attached to hitting leadoff or fourth or whatever, uh, and you know, and they would not care as much to bat ninth, obviously, in this because this sort of telegraphs their skill uh, to fans, to uh, you know, prospective future teams, etc. Do, do you think there's something similar to that um, uh, in the outfield where uh, there's a certain pride? And maybe we saw this with Tory Hunter uh, in the with the Angels, a certain pride attached to playing center field as opposed to a corner outfield position. Yeah, I mean, I think with Hunter, we saw he was actually willing to move off once he saw how good Borges and Mike Trout were. And, you know, I think he made even statements last year that he was happy to move off center field because he, he realized Mike Trout was amazing. Uh, but I do think there's definitely a pride element at play. And I think we see this maybe more in the, in the, the fringes of whether a guy is going to play the field all or not. I mean, you have guys, you know, Prince Fielder was pretty adamant as a free agent. He didn't want to DH. Adam Dunn was pretty similar until he was basically forced to DH. Because a lot of guys who are really you know, bad defensive players who probably should be DHing come out and say uh, they're not interested in DHing. They want to play the field. Uh, you know, they're they're just you know it's not even so much a pride thing as it is uh, that you know they don't see the DH as a full time position and they want to be involved in all aspects of the game regardless of whether they're hurting the team or not. 
So I think that we do see that there's some level of selfishness involved uh, where the player, you know, is looking out for his own interests, maybe above that of the team. Um, and I think, you know, there's certainly some, uh, you know, pride issues with guys who played in the position for a long time. You know, Derek Jeter is probably the obvious example of a guy who, um, you know, not a great defensive shortstop for most of his career, and maybe at some point you could have made an argument that uh, Jeter should have been moved to second base or even the outfield in order to maximize his uh, overall value. But, you know, Jeter's the Yankee shortstop. He's going to be the Yankee shortstop until he retires. And I think, you know, kind of the benefit of this analysis of looking at, uh, you know, the overall distribution of balls in play and how much it matters of where a guy actually plays is realizing it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things if you're faced with, you know, pissing off your franchise player and making a, a huge dramatic news story in order to save a couple of runs, it's probably not worth it. So, I mean, is this, uh, as you mentioned, there are some other examples, though, of uh, teams organizing their, reorganizing their outfields. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, what, what are the motivations behind those, for example? Well, I think what we're actually saying is uh, teams are getting away from the idea of center fielders and corner outfielders. I think this is a little bit of a an aging, dying mystique where you had, you know, speedy leadoff hitting center fielders and you had, you know, big monster slugging corner outfielders. I mean, uh, in today's day and age, you know, I think that there's not that big of a difference between the positions as there used to be and teams are realizing that you can have defensive value in a corner and you can have, you know, value as a slugging center fielder like a, a guy like Matt Kemp who's, you know, not necessarily a classic speed and defense center fielder, um, but the Dodgers are totally okay with him playing there in order to get extra bats in the lineup. I think uh, teams are just getting away from this idea of center field and corner outfield being different positions and just realizing, hey, let's just get three good outfielders and we, you know, we'll figure out where to play them once we have them. But, you know, I mean, if we have a center fielder already and there's a good center fielder ball in our laps, Cleveland Indians showed that, you know, they weren't overly concerned with having Michael Bourne and Michael Brantley play side by side. The Angels aren't concerned about having diminishing returns with Mike Trout and Peter Burgess. Um, you know, the Nationals went and got Denard Span, even though they already had Bryce Harper and Jason Lawrence, who could have covered center field. I think what we're seeing is teams are just looking at who's the best outfielder I can get and then figuring out how to align those guys rather than saying, oh, I need a center fielder or I need a left fielder. Now, I, uh, this might be uh, the very picture naivety, this question, but is there uh, will this have any effect in calculating wins above replacement? Because we do have a positional adjustment in there. Uh, does somehow maybe a lack of concern on, uh, on the part of teams uh, where they where they deploy their outfielders, does that affect positional adjustment at all? Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting thing to look at is uh, whether the center field, corner outfield positional adjustment needs to be adjusted over time. I mean, you know, the numbers have never been set in stone where you should take them at, you know, exact face value anyway. They're more of a back-of-the-envelope calculation. But, you know, if we see that uh, the, there's a flattening uh, in terms of the different offensive difference between center fielders and corner outfielders, I think we have seen that as more teams are willing to use Brett Gardner types uh, in left field and, and – um, we're seeing, you know, maybe more overall um, hitters who can also defend pretty well um, come up and, and end up in the outfield. Uh, we'll have to look at it by, you know, is there still a 10-run difference, which is a positional adjustment for left field versus right field and center field, um, or left field and right field versus center field. Is that still the case going forward if teams are making different changes, or does that positional adjustment need to be reduced um, to account for the fact that, you know, maybe there's not as big a gap as there used to be? Okay, that's all interesting. Now, um, I do want to address briefly uh, before we move on the uh, the Granderson Gardner situation a little bit more in depth because uh, that's that's uh, some news, and of course it concerns a, a, a 
two two talented players in a, in a team that, uh, of course, is uh, uh, whether you like them or or probably hate them uh, is uh, one that uh, all other teams and, and uh, fans must reckon with, and that's the Yankees. Um, just before we've gotten on here, actually, uh, Jeff Sullivan has has uh, written a post temporarily uh, replacing Curtis Granderson, but I have not had a chance to read it. What do you think uh, he says in it, or maybe you know what he says because you read it in your because you're his editor? Right. Yes, I, I am aware of what he said, uh, and he basically said the the smart thing that you should say about the situation. People who are calling the injury devastating or a huge blow to the Yankees are overreacting. I mean, you know, Granderson being out ten weeks in June would be a pretty big deal. Granderson being out 10 weeks in February means he's actually only out for five weeks for the regular season. We're talking about uh, Granderson being out probably through mid-May once you account for the fact that he's probably going to have to rehab and you know go on a, a trip to the minors in order to account for the fact that he missed most of spring training. But, I mean, is anyone talking about Corey Hart's injury being devastating for the Brewers? It's, it's the same timetable, essentially. Uh, losing, you know, five weeks of a, a three- or four-win player means that on a high end, you might be looking at, you know, one win off the Yankees' expected total. That win has some value. Uh, it's not that, you know, losing Granderson is nothing, but it's not a devastating injury, just like Mariano Rivera going down for the season last year wasn't a devastating injury. And, uh, you know, teams can overcome the loss of a short-term uh, injury to a non-premium player, and Curtis Granderson at this point in his career is not a premium player anymore. So I think that the Yankees' internal replacements are pretty terrible, and they should probably look outside – their organization for a you know an upgrade on their uh, fourth outfielder slash part-time DH uh, guy, which right now looks like Juan Rivera or Matt Stairs. Uh, in the post, Sul- uh, Sullivan mentions Casper Wells, who looks like he's probably the odd man out in Seattle because the Mariners inexplicably like Jason Bay and want to give him a chance to rejuvenate his career. Mm-hmm. So Casper Wells, who's out of options, is probably going to be available for trade block at some point in the future, and that's a guy the Yankees could potentially target as a you know, not terrible uh, fill-in who could also serve as a fourth outfielder after Grimson comes back. That's probably more the kind of move the AG should be looking to make than, you know, panicking and taking on Alfonso Soriano's contract just because Granderson's out till May. Yeah, and I, uh, I'll i add, uh, um, uh, Russell Brannion's still available. Can he play left field? <laughs> uh, not in a way that, uh, you know, I think when we're talking about outfield alignment, we think that they don't matter as long as you're not putting guys like Russell Brandon out there. Then yeah. they start to matter. Uh, what about uh, Bobby Scales? I think he's uh, retired yeah, he, he's now. A, he's also a second baseman, isn't he? Yeah, I think he actually did play some outfield. And also he's uh, like director of player development for the Angels now. Uh, however, right. Is this how you're, you're, are you trying to like work in the content from your daily notes column that no one read? Oh, it's uh, this is sweeping the internet. This is ridiculous what you're saying right now. Um, but it does it does actually does bring a, up a couple points. Um, is that uh, well? Of course, uh, today in the notes I looked at uh, players who received the most the best projections but are not promised the starting spot. I mean, it, it brings up a couple points, right? One is uh, Eric Chavez is at the top of that list. Um, if if we say that um, you know we have we've lost Granderson now and. Um, we're going to have to replace him with someone. Last year this happened, as you know, to uh, to the Yankees with Alex Rodriguez. I, I think Eric Chavez was actually the more valuable player both overall and on a, a you know per plate appearance basis last year. So this is something, like you mentioned, is it is it um, the worst-case scenario? No, perhaps you uh, are able to pick someone up who you know produces uh, on a level on par with the replacement. I mean – the chances of doing that twice in, uh, in two seasons are probably low. Um, 
But Eric Chavez, correct me if I'm wrong, was actually the better player last year. Yeah, but Chavez had a great year for the Yankees. The tough thing is you couldn't have seen that coming. I mean, he hadn't hit in like five years. And, uh, you know, I think with Chavez, you know, uh, he had a, he had a really nice year that you probably can't expect him to repeat. And it's probably not that easy to go out and find a, you know, a guy sitting on someone's bench who you can get for free who's going to put up a 900 OPS in Granderson's, uh, ending Granderson's absence. But I mean, I think that the, the reality is there are, you know, one to two win players out there, uh, in teams, minor league systems. Um, you know, I know your fa- favorite guy, Connor Gillespie, just got picked up by the White Sox last week for basically a song. I mean, the Giants essentially gave him away because they didn't really have a spot for him. Uh, I think Vince projects him for 1.8 war this year. Uh, you know, if he gets full, full playing time, that's a, you know, the White Sox essentially added a decent organizational depth piece nothing. And that's kind of what the Yankees should probably be looking to do right now is go find a guy like that, find the outfield version of that and say, you know, what's a, a slightly below average but not totally useless outfielder that we can give a chance to for five or six weeks and, you know, maybe we'll strike gold and that guy can uh, get more playing time even after Granderson gets back. Right. Or, you, or he becomes a trade chip at that point, right? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think a lot of times when you get a guy who has like a, you know, bench profile or, you know, is that kind of player, uh, they're never going to be seen by scouts as having huge upside and, you know, even a month or two months worth of good performance isn't going to turn them into, you know, a highly coveted uh, trade chip. I think in general, uh, teams don't change their profiles on guys all that quickly. Okay. All right, that's interesting. Um, yeah, but with regard to these uh, projections as well, it's also uh, germane to our present conversation uh, because um, you looked at last week, I, um, I actually w- I was glad you did this. Um, you and I had uh, corresponded briefly uh, with regard to the fan projections, right? And I had asked yeah. you, uh, what uh, are, are they seem, I said, they seem optimistic. Do we have a sense of the, the degree to which they're inflated? Um, and how regular it is. You you answered one of those questions immediately. You said, well, it's probably about somewhere between 15, 25%, maybe say 20, 20% is probably fair. But then uh, in a post, you actually uh, you actually went a step further to look at the distribution of that, uh, of the fans' optimism. Yeah, and, and you know, the funny thing is that I answered that mostly off the top of my head, remembering what we calculated the last few years, and then when I actually went through and I took Steber kind of as the, um, you know, correct version of the projections, which Steamer may not be exactly correct themselves, but at least they worked as like a rational test. Uh, and the fans had projected uh, across the board 19% more war for the exact same set of players uh, when you lined up their projections versus Steamer. So the 20% mark was almost exactly right. Uh, so I deflated it and put them on the same scale and then uh, looked at kind of, you know, what types of players the fans were more optimistic about than, than Steamer. And it was pretty clear that it was almost entirely based on age. Uh, fans really love young players and don't like old players so much, uh, where the steamer projections are much more flat in terms of uh, aging curves, where um, they're not nearly as aggressive on the top young prospects, the 22, 23-year-olds with very little track, uh, major league track records, and they're more optimistic about guys who have you know, been in the majors for 10 or 15 years and are on the downside of their career um, and might even be coming off a, you know, a down season where fans are going to look at that and say, oh, a 36-year-old had a bad year, he's done. But for the the algorithm kind of looks at it and says, well, you know, it's just one season. We should, you know, take into account the larger sample and, you know, his overall career track record. Um, fans are a little more, uh, I would say, key in that regard, where they're more likely to overreact to a bad performance from an old player or a great performance from a young player than minors. Yeah, now, uh, th- this seems that we can look at a player uh, like, Lance Berkman, for example, right? Yeah. This is a good this is a good example of this of a player 
Uh, he was traded. I mean, the thing is, he was traded for very little, or, or he somehow made his way to the Yankees from the Astros. Um, yeah. Uh, then proceeded to have uh, a very, uh, very good season with with the Cardinals. A good, good season and a half, I guess, with the Cardinals. Yeah, correct. Um, is this the sort of player you're talking about who's maybe being uh, underappreciated by the fans? Yeah, I mean, I think Berkman's an example. I think uh, Albert Pujols is actually maybe even a better example. I mean, up until last year, Pujols was considered in the running for best player in baseball status. He had a pretty lousy five-week, six-week stretch at the beginning of last year, and then went back to being Albert Poole basically for the rest of the season. Uh, but fans didn't forget that five, six-week stretch, and you know there's probably still some uh, people out there who think that he's older than he says he is, and kind of that issue hanging over his head. Uh, so I think you know on a per 600 plate appearance basis, fans have Albert Poole's projected for 3.8 WAR this year, which is uh, uh, very low <laughs> considering what Poole's track record is. I think Steamer has him, uh, you know, five, something close to that. Um, there's a big gap in, in difference of opinion between uh, what the algorithm looks at and, and what the fans think from Pools. And I think that we see consistently that these older guys coming off down years, um, the, the fans are going to be uh, less optimistic about those guys than um, the algorithm. And that's probably just, uh, you know, the fans, at least is my conclusion, is that the fans aren't properly regressing most recent performance to the mean. Well, and I guess there's a certain level of – well, you, I, you discussed it in the context of irrational exuberance, I guess, right? There's a certain fascination we might have with youth because we're able to um, – or the, the one might have with youth because you're able to project things that maybe aren't there, right? They allow for a, imagination. Yeah, and I think that, you know, like hope is one of the uh, main things that being a fan is about. Even if your team isn't good, you you will almost always have hope for the future. You're looking for minor leaders. You're looking for reasons to believe that things will be better in the future than they are in the past. It's talking about, like, positive regression to the mean from a guy who's older and coming off a bad season that offers very little hope for your franchise in the future. Like, you know, uh, whether a guy is going to be a two-win player instead of a three-win player uh, at age 37 regardless, the, the conclusion is going to be he's not going to be around very long, he's not going to be productive for very long, and he's probably not going to have a big impact on your future. If you think, you know, uh, Oscar Tavares is a four-win player this season and he's going to take, you know, monstrous steps forward, then all of a sudden you're projecting him for the Hall of Fame outfielder. That's a pretty exciting thing for the Cardinals' uh, future and for the hope the Cardinals fans could put on Oscar Tavares uh, versus if he's a, you know, one-and-a-half, two-win outfielder right now and, you know, might take a few years to break in and, and become the star that people think he can be. Now, do we see the same uh, um, the same dynamic? Do we see it represented in the way that uh, teams treat players? So, we, you know, you've uh, borne out here via a post you did last week the fact that fans are much more are more likely to over-project younger players and uh, maybe still to over-project older players, but by a lesser amount. If we After adjustments, it appears that the fans are less enthusiastic about older players. Do we see teams taking a similar approach to older players? I think so, and I think this is maybe one of those ways that we can look at the Giants and kind of explain a little bit of why they've been able to succeed the last few years in spite of making some moves that, you know, weren't exactly Fangraphs approved. But Brian Sabian's MO and the thing that he's been widely criticized for for a long time in sabermetric circles is his fetish with old players and his uh, kind of, you know, uh, nonchalant attitude toward prospects. I mean, the Giants have gotten a lot of crap online the last couple of years about how they treated Brandon Belt and how they keep, uh, you know, blocking him with older, declining players like Aubrey Huff. And, you know, they 
Redskins with contract extensions to Freddie Sanchez, and you know they keep loading up on these uh, older rosters. Uh, but I think you know in general that there's probably some truth to the fact that older players are a little bit undervalued relative to the public perception, and young players are probably overvalued. And so if you're looking for a market inefficiency, uh, you know, getting good values on short-term deals on older players is probably not a terrible place to look. And I think, you know, we've even seen the Yankees doing this to some extent. Uh, while they talk about trying to develop pitching prospects and develop from within, you know, they're signing Andy Pettit, they're signing Hiroki Kuroda, um, you know, they're signing Freddie Garcia. They're building rotations out of guys who don't have a ton of upside but are quality, effective major league starters. Uh, and don't require long-term deals. And I think you can build a pretty decent franchise or a pretty decent team, at least, uh, by patching holes with these guys on short-term deals who aren't getting crazy amounts of money because of their age. Uh, and maybe, you know, there is too much exuberance around uh, the young player who put up good numbers in the minors um, and, you know, avoiding those guys or, you know, maybe trading them and, and replacing them with veterans might not be a terrible way to build a team anymore. Um, yeah, no, I guess I guess the question is with regard to Sabian or with regard to the Yankees or regard to any franchise, right? It's it's how much they pay the older players, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, you don't want to give a 38-year-old a seven-year deal. I mean, I think the idea is that you're trying to, to find value from uh, these older guys who have been cast aside. And, you know, like the, uh, the first Aubrey Huff contract for the Giants was a great one. The second Aubrey Huff contract was a terrible one. So I think that, you know, it's not that just signing every older player to – long-term deals is a good idea, and you want to pick and choose your battles. But if you can get, you know, a guy who projects a, a league average or, you know, maybe even a little better than league average, uh, you know, first baseman for a couple million dollars because teams look at him and see a guy on the decline without a lot of upside, that's not a, not a bad risk to take. And so I think that we see you can make those kind of leaps and you can make those kind of moves um, to improve your roster in the present without long-term commitment. Do, I mean, do we see this uh, like I, a couple of, like does, is uh, Carlos Pena an example of that, or, or is he somewhere else in the spectrum? I think Pena is probably down towards the line where you know he's probably not an average player anymore. I think he's probably more of a one-win guy, so he's getting paid like a a guy who probably shouldn't start on a contending team. Um, but I do think we see this more on the pitching side of things. I think you know like Ryan Dempster is a pretty good example. Uh, I think he signed for twenty-six million over two years. Um, you know, it's a decent annual average value, but Ryan Dempster has been a pretty good pitcher. Uh, but he's 35, 36 years old. Doesn't have exciting stuff, so he didn't generate like a really big long-term contract. But I think you can make a decent case that there's not a huge gap in present talent between Ryan Dempster and Anibal Sanchez. Anibal Sanchez got a five-year, eighty million dollar deal because he was 28. Uh, you know, certainly you should expect more value from Sanchez over the next five years than you should from Dempster. But the Red Sox didn't have to pay for years three, four, and five, so now they have the financial flexibility to go buy a different pitcher. Uh, and replace those years where the Tigers are locked into Sanchez. And if he gets, you know, his arm blows up or something happens to him, uh, that can very well be dead money while the Red Sox have the flexibility to go make a decision uh, based on more recent data in, in a couple of years. Um, we've been discussing uh, projections quite a bit during this conversation. Uh, I just want to touch on one last thing before you are uh, um, liberated from your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, um, you uh, you wrote a post last week discussing the differences between predictions and projections. Uh, yeah. Well, well, I'll trust that the reader is at least familiar with the idea. Here's the thing I'm curious about. It's a little bit more specific. Um, you you sort of a, uh, make a request of forecasters. Uh, you say that you'd like to see if, – if for forecasters who are doing projected standings, you'd like to see yeah. some uh, errors or confidence levels. 
Um, and maybe you even request this uh, on a player-by-player -player level. And I'm curious, um, in either case, are we going to see any of those from the, from the numbers that come out of Fangraphs? Well, I think it would be ideal, especially for the team forecast. I mean, I think with the player uh, forecast, you know, depending on what kind of thing you're looking at, I don't, I don't think anyone wants to necessarily see an air bar on a pitcher's projected tip where you say, you know, I have 95% confidence that he's supposed to stab it between somewhere, you know, between 200 and 400. <laughs> you know, and that's not all that helpful. But I think, you know, for team-wide forecasts and standing forecasts, things that are going to get a lot of national attention, um, which I think we know the projected standings get a lot of national attention, it's on us to try and explain them the best we can. And so if you know that people who aren't, um, you know, experts in math and understand probability really well, if they're going to misuse the numbers because of how we're displaying them, then we should try and display them differently. And, and so when we put out a projected standing that just has a single number, um, you know, win attached to it, and someone's going to look at it and say, you know, there was even a piece today where uh, an Orioles writer, uh, you know, overreacted to the fact that Zips projected the Orioles finished last in the American League East and said that, you know, ESPN the magazine is uh, biased against them because it's uh, saying that they're going to finish in last place, when in reality, I think if we ran a 1,000 simulations, uh, the Orioles would probably finish in places other than last more often than not. We're not saying that they would finish in last place. We're just saying they're the worst team in the division, uh, which I think is probably a true statement. And the worst team in the division will finish in last place more often than all the other teams in the division, but doesn't mean they're going to finish in last place. And so, you know, I think it would be behoove us to um, help people understand that we're saying that something is the most probable outcome uh, isn't definitely mean it's a likely outcome. So you can have unlikely outcomes that are still the most probable, and I think it's showing a range and um, kind of showing likelihoods of each individual kind of integer uh, is a good way to get people to grasp this. So, you know, we don't do our own projections with hangraphs. We host other people's projections. So I can't make Dan Zaborski or uh, the steamer guys or whoever give us these numbers, but I think if they were interested in um, kind of showing us a spread of overall projected wins and say, hey, look, you know, uh, if, we, if we ran this a thousand times here, how often I think this team would finish in this place, this place, this place, or how often they'd win this many games, I think that would be uh, helpful to the people uh, at large who maybe don't work with probability distributions every day. Let me ask you this, Kim. I, I, should, I should note that I think that you have now satisfied your obligation. Um, what... Uh, uh, if you, you probably have noticed that sometimes I will um, I will make note that you've uh, analyzed all of baseball, maybe analyzed 110%. I think last week you said you gave a very precise number, uh, 93%. Uh, with regard to this week, what, what would you say? Uh, I mean, you, you can express it however you want, but how do you feel as though you did analyzing baseball today? Yeah, I think I probably analyzed two standard deviations above the, above the mean. <laughs> That sounds. I, that's good, right? I mean, this is what ninety uh, something about ninety something percent. Well, two theater deviations means that you're you have a ninety five percent confidence that uh, of the prediction, but you know, two standard deviations, yeah. you can't really turn that into a percentage unless you actually know what the spread is and what the variance is. You, you, I'm basically yeah. just trying to make it as hard as possible for you to work this number into the title. Uh, yes, it, you have done. You have succeeded in that. I appreciate that. Um, Okay. Yeah, I could deal with it though. That's my uh, that's my cross to bear, isn't it? Yes. Good yeah. luck figuring this out. All right. Uh, that is uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Dave, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, your pleasure. That's right. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.